It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. This week, we'll hear from a decluttering expert and TV host who now lives in Georgia. Matt Paxton, formerly of the A&E show Hoarders, now hosts a show on PBS called Legacy List with Matt Paxton. The Sewanee resident rummages through collectibles and heirlooms found in attics, cellars, and closets, helping baby boomers pare down their stuff as they downsize and focus on what is truly valuable to them. On this week's podcast, Paxton talks about his own personal experience with downsizing to move in with his fiance in Georgia and tells Rodney Ho what led him to his line of work. And Rodney is here to tell us a little about what we'll hear. Welcome, Rodney. Hey, how's it going, Shane? Uh, it's going great. So uh, I, was, I was fascinated to read this story about Matt Paxton and you know his, his journey to where he is now. Yeah, no, he, he's an interesting guy. I mean, he start, he was a finance major. He worked at the Federal Reserve and he worked at Caesars Palace as a finance guy, but he just didn't like that type of work. And uh, he ended up becoming a gambling addict, too. And then his father, he was pretty young, and then his father and his grandfather died. And, his you know, he, he went through this kind of mental spiral. And somehow he just ended up taking care of, he just started cleaning out. I think it was when he was cleaning out his dad's attic, it just gave him an idea to so- start helping older people clean out their stuff, you know, downsize. Yeah. Uh, and it, it just hit him really well for some reason. It, it was just like the right thing for him to do. And he started a business. And I think right. he became known well enough that when the hoarder show started in, in the late 2000s, they started the show. They were looking for people to help them find hoarders. And they, they called him up and said, can you find us some hoarders? And he found them some hoarders. And they didn't originally have any plans to, like, you know, use him. <laughs> but, you know, there he goes. Right. Uh, he ended up becoming actually quite good on TV. <laughs> ended up doing that for many, many years. But but I, I got the sense that, you know, it's tiring work, it's mentally exhausting. And I, I think he wanted to do something that also didn't cause him to spend like 40 weeks of the year out on the road. I mean, I think it just 
was a very, very hard show to do from a time perspective. You know, you got to spend all this time and mental energy at these people's homes. Um, so he, he found a different story idea. That's Legacy List, where, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a different type of show uh, in, in the sense that, you know, these are not people who are in trouble or people who are, you know, on, on their last legs, who've just piled their entire house up with crap. No, these are just regular folks with interesting things in there who are trying to downsize or pare down their things because they're downsizing. Everybody at some point, usually if you have a house with five kids and suddenly you're in an empty nest and you want to downsize, you've got a lot of stuff. <laughs> Look, we watch a lot of reality TV for the train wreck, right? I mean, it's really, you're there to sort of gawk and feel better about yourself. Um, but this is more of a P and, and look, it's on PBS. So it, it's, it's a lot kinder and gentler <laughs> for, for the eyes. And now, of course, he's living here in uh, Suwannee now. So, yeah, no, it was interesting. I mean, he, he got divorced. Uh, you know, I, I get a sense like maybe his work kind of over overtook him. And then he he met uh, another decluttering fan like at a TED talk. He was doing a TED talk and he met Zoe Kim, who also is a decluttering like she's a minimalist. They call them a minimalist. And he ended up, she was building her dream house here in Suwannee. It's a 2,700 square foot house. And she already has uh, four kids. Um, and he has three kids. So uh, you can imagine a 2,700 square foot house sounds not bad square footage wise, but when you have nine people in the house, that's, that's pretty crowded. Uh, but she, she keeps the house very, very neat, you know, not surprisingly minimalistic. And in a weird way, it actually frees her up and them up because they don't have to spend so much time cleaning. There's just not as much stuff to clean. Uh, everything is, you know, organized. And um, it's, you know, I think even, you know, I wasn't there, you know, I didn't come when all the kids were there. I think, you know, for social distancing purposes, I was just there with them. Um, but it, it, it must be kind of fascinating to watch all nine of them <laughs> in the home. Yeah, I bet, I bet, I can't imagine. Uh. <laughs> Well, anyway, so so uh, you brought us uh, your interview with him, and uh, is there anything else we need to know before we uh, go into that? No, I, I mean it, it. It's really helpful, I guess, to think about your stuff. You know, it's like, what do you really need, and and what will you want to keep if you ended up having to like pare down your stuff to the bare minimum? What are the four or five things that are most important to you? And they usually have to be attached to a story. Like, it, it can't just be a thing. Maybe that you would sell on eBay it would have to have some story behind it, something important to you that, you know, and it may not be worth anything intrinsically, but it might be just a great story. So that that's his big focus is about how things are attached to stories and memories. Right. Well, great. Well, uh, let's hear from Matt Paxton. And thanks so much, Rodney. Hey, this is Rodney Ho with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I am here with Matt Paxton. He was known as one of the coolest cleaners on Annie's Hoarders and is now um, on his second season of a PBS show called The Legacy List with Matt Paxton. Uh, welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. I uh, hear you recently moved to uh, the greater Atlanta area. Welcome to town. Thank you. It's like no traffic and super easy here, man. I love it. Wait, you came from Richmond. That wasn't exactly traffic hell, was it? <laughs> no, man. It was. <laughs> Richmond is like the most effortless place in the world. And it, this has definitely been like a wide open like move. It's it's definitely a different area. I love it, but it's just it's just so many people. Tell me a little bit uh, about how you even ended up in the world of hoarders first, and then uh, you know what will will lead into how that segued into the legacy list. Yeah, people always want to know like how'd you get into hoarding, and I I jokingly say I failed at everything else, but like. Yeah, it's interesting. You were like a mathematician, weren't you? An economist. I was. I was an economist by trade. 
and I hated I knew I worked for the Federal Reserve right out of college. And, you know, you go to college and you work really hard for this amazing job. And, and I got it. Like I Fancy. Oh, yeah. I had a briefcase, man. I had to wear a suit every day. Like, a lot of people uh, laugh. I mean, I wore a suit. I was a banker. And it's one of those jobs that, like, you work really hard to get. And you think you want it. And then the minute you get the job, you're like, oh, I just wanted to win. I didn't actually, I didn't actually want this, you know. And I, I knew the first day of my job. I was like, I'm, not, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't want to do this. And so I did it for a year, uh, six months. And then I became an economist for Caesars Palace Casinos. Which also sounds like and a cool job. Uh, a slightly cooler version of your job, I guess. But still, it wasn't for you, right? It was, definitely, it was definitely a cooler version of my economist job. But I was a kid, man. I was 23. And I was living literally in Las Vegas and then Lake Tahoe. And I just wasn't mature enough to handle the lifestyle that goes along with living in Las Vegas. My goodness, yeah. I guess the gambling became a bit of a, a temptation, right? And yeah, I mean, I tell everybody, like, I lost everything, and it was awesome. Like, I had a blast. <laughs> like, I don't regret it. I regret the, I guess I regret the money that I lost, but not even really that. Uh, at at least you were in your early 20s. You didn't have a family at the time. You, you just, if you're yeah. going to screw up, you screwed up yourself and nobody else. Yeah. And I was like the best at it, man. Like I, it was a huge screw. I mean, I lost everything. I owed a bookie $40,000. Like if you're going to mess up, like do it loud. Right. And I did. And it's been a great, and it's been a great story, you know, ever since. I mean, I've made, I, I, I mean, I lost 40, I literally owed a bookie 40 grand. And I lost that in the summer. You, you, you uh, unfortunately uh, lost your, um, you know, lost your dad relatively young, and then you lost your stepdad and your grandfather in a short period of time. And I, I know you, you've talked about, you know, how you kind of hit hit a, a mental break right at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's funny when you end up working with hoarders, uh, you do it because like every, you know, I lost my dad, my stepdad, everybody died, and it was a really sad time. And I was just lost, and it was like one of those times where you're like, all right, man, like, come on, life. Like, give me something good here, you know? And I started cleaning old ladies' attics just because I, I had no money. I had nothing. Yeah, talk, talk yeah. about a change of pace from your 9 to 5 Federal Reserve job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that was all within like three years, you know, Federal Reserve, college, Federal Reserve, the, the you know, casinos, and then came home, everybody died, and I was all of a sudden by myself cleaning these houses. and. It sounds like this horrible, sad story, but like, oh, totally. I mean, the best thing I needed was to be by myself in a house going through my memories, right? It forced me to be alone. And when you really fast forward to working with hoarders, it ended up being the best work I ever could have done to prepare to work with hoarders because I, it, I started to understand failure. I started to understand trauma, tragedy, and isolation, all things very prevalent in hoarding. At that point in my life, it didn't make sense. Ten years later, I'm I'm one of the best hoarding cleanup guys in the country, and it's because I went through all those failures and had all that tragedy. Explain um, your connection to you know how this created more empathy for you toward people who you know ultimately ha you know feel this need to collect stuff. Yeah, I mean it it sounds like a really sad story, but it really wasn't. Like I was just kind of earning my chops. I mean I was cleaning these houses and and dealing with my own trauma, my own tragedy, my own isolation. And at the same time, I'm, I'm helping my clients that were in the same way. And this was before we were on TV. I was just doing this in the real world. And what I later found out is like, man, I mean, you know, 10 years later on Hoarders, I'm known for cleaning the, the, the best of the best, you know, the hardest, worst cases. And these are people that are at rock bottom. And it turns out you need to have been at rock bottom to be able to really help them. And so, you know, the irony in it is, is I would I would not be 
the, you know, a really good hoarding, you know, person, if I hadn't gone through all that tragedy and trauma myself, I happened to, to go to gambling for trauma. My hoarders happened to go to stuff, same behaviors, just different outcomes. Absolutely. Um, when you uh, ended up doing the TV show, that wasn't something you were planning to do, right? And you ended up, you know, producer called you, needed some help, and they ended up using you, right? And you ended up being this TV guy without even meaning yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, in fact, they had, like, specifically said, we do not want you for the TV show. We are just looking for houses to cast. So basically, they were going to pay me a couple hundred bucks to show them some hoarded houses. And they were, and if they filmed them, they'd give me another hundred bucks. And, like, that was a million dollars to me. And so they specifically said, we're not putting you on TV. And that was on a Monday. And they met me on Tuesday they filmed me on Wednesday. They were like, hey, you want to go to Alabama and be on TV? They <laughs> so instantly realized you, you worked yeah. on TV. I presume you're not the person who thought you would ever work on TV, right? That was not a you, – you were not uh, – aspiration. it wasn't an aspiration, was it? You know, I was still trying to be the guy um, – I think I always thought I was a rock star. I just didn't like have a band Dude, to do reality TV. You gotta, you gotta like have that deep in you. Cause it's not a glamorous fun thing. I mean, it's really an awful career. I would not tell anyone to go into TV. I enjoyed the spotlight as a kid. I always wanted to be funny. I just, I don't know, man, I just lucked out. I got that opportunity to be on TV and it fit at a very young age. I actually got to do what I was supposed to do. And I think people, you know, a lot of people don't find out what they're supposed to do with their life until much later in life. And I wasn't even, I mean, I was 30, you know, well, I was 32. I didn't have a kid yet. And I was, you know, and so I was very, very lucky to to want to be on TV and to have that opportunity. Well, it all kind of worked out in the end. So that's yeah. uh, that, that was actually something that, you know, even though this is not a usual path for people to end up on TV is to be a, I guess what you end up calling yourself, what, an extreme cleaning expert? Uh, there's no title for what you do, right? Yeah, I made that. We made that up one day in, in interviews and the camera guy just kind of looked at me. He's like, that's going to stick. And it's still like, I still feel like I'll see people on it, on LinkedIn now that have that title, extreme cleaning specialist. And it just makes me laugh. I'm like, man, I just made that title up one day. Well, you know, you did that for for several years, and I guess there was a point of burnout, right? I mean, you you it, this was taking a lot of time. You 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 ultimately got married, had kids, and it, it, I get the impression the time away was not necessarily a positive after a while. That is very eloquently put. Yes, I I, I traveled too much, had kids, got divorced, and realized that like I just couldn't travel that much anymore. It was too much. I wasn't the dad I wanted to be. And so at the same time, I had, you know, I still had a business that was growing. I mean, you don't realize like this was at the beginning of reality TV. I mean, not with like real world or anything, but it was like that second phase of reality TV. And so it really drove my business really big, that that second wave of reality. And so I had I had a hundred person, you know, payroll and I had I had guys running around the country cleaning out hoarded houses. And it was it was just a lot, you know, and, and it was awesome. I, I just I'm never going to complain about it. But it was just so much. So I'd be, you know, I'd be on the road. I'd come home. I'd work, and I just didn't give my family the time it needed. And so I actually, about I don't know, five years ago, I was like, okay, what's the next wave of this? Like, how do I, how do I get out of hoarding? Because it's very mentally, you know, taxing, to say the least. And I realized, I said, well, gosh, half my clients are people. They're not hoarders. They're just, they're just families that have a lot of stuff. And so I said, okay, what's the positive side of that? And I just trying to kept because I really enjoy my job. I was like, all right, well, what's the how do I keep this job, stay home a little more, and it just be more positive? And for me, it was helping our grandparents. 
you know, they still had too much stuff. They still, a lot of them were the last kids of the depression. So the whole formula, yeah, the greatest generation and the formula stuck, but I loved their stories. Their stories were amazing and it was a fun job. Honestly, you get to go to a lady's house and hear, you know, who she dated when she was 20 and, you know, what, you know, what they did during the war and all, I mean, just crazy, amazing stories. And I was, I was really just trying to transition my business. I was trying to get out of TV. I had, you know, the running joke on Hoarders is I quit every year and then I'd always come back, (laughs) you know? And so like the producers still to this day, they laugh. They're like, oh yeah, you quitting this year, man? Like, we'll see you in the fall, you know? (laughs) Because like they always think, you know, and who knows, I always say I'm going to quit and I've always, you know, uh, so far I've always come back. But like, I just fell in love with these stories. And that's when I said, okay, I need a new show that is straight up about these amazing so, stories. So you started pitching the idea. Um, I presume you pitched it to A&E being the, you know, the play, and they said no, I guess, or they didn't find I it. Comp- it to, yeah, I pitched it to every cable network in the country, mm-hmm. including A&E. And, and what was the lacking in this, you know, from their perspective, what did they need? They that- said, it's boring and nobody wants to watch old people on TV. And, and, and it's, yeah, and and in fact, one I can't remember which network it was. I think it was Bravo. Was like, don't quote me on this. They were, they were like, they, well, do quote me. But they were like, uh, do you have any? Do you have any like attractive granddaughters that would fight over the stuff? And I was like, yeah, that's not the show I'm trying to make. And I, you know, <laughs> this was right. Oh, it would, it would kill it. It would. They were like, we love the story, Matt. We're thinking a different host, not you. And can we get grand attractive granddaughters to fight? And I was like, I'm sure you could. I'm like, I'm sure you could. And it would probably do very well. But I remember thinking, all right, well, never mind. Like, this isn't going to work. Nobody wants this show. It was also at the same time Trump had just been elected, not to get political here, but like I knew that we would be, it was very clear to me that actually, believe it or not, I was filming a hoarders the night that uh, Trump won. And I remember we, it was a massive horde. It was, I mean, we had 45 people there cleaning. It was a massive, massive. Yeah, we took, we took, I mean, we took over a million pounds of trash out of this house. It was in Greensboro, North Carolina. It was the biggest horde I'd ever done. 97, a million pounds of trash. Man, we had 40, we did 40, was it 97 dumpsters in four days. So, I mean, it was insane, man. Like, it was just, it was a massive, it was the biggest horde we've ever done. It's the Sandra episode. It was, it was amazing. But here we are. I, I remember, like, Trump had won that night, and, like, all my employees were fighting over it. And I'd never, and a lot of my guys are, like, ex-cons. I got a lot of immigrants. Like, guys that, that do hoarding for a career don't always have the best options. And I remember, I'm like, guys, what are you fighting about? And, like, they just, it, they were so high. I was like, man, this is not going to be good. And like, again, I don't want to get political on either side of it. There was a lot of negativity. And I said to myself that day, I said, okay, well, now more than ever, we're going to need a positive show. And it takes about two years from concept to, to sell to get a TV show. And so I was like, all right, well, I better start working on this now because I'm going to want, we're going to really need positive in a couple of years. And man, was I ever right? You know, and here we are four years later. And it did take me a little while to get that show sold. And we've made, we're in season two now. Yeah. What made PBS, why do you think PBS is a good home for the show? The legacy well, I thought, Yeah. I just assumed that, you know, I, you know, old school, you look at, you know, your PBS, I mean, my partners are PBS, NPR and AARP. And I was like, okay, this is older people. Right. And what I've forgotten was that the grandkids and the adult children, my age, 45, and then grandma, like three generations really enjoy our show. It's not just one. 
And I think what is interesting about public television is it's still free. And a lot of people are dropping, obviously, basic cable. And a lot of people are going to streaming. But a lot of people just have basic television on analog. And so the show's done really well. And what it does most is it makes us think about our grandparents and our loved ones. And that's positive. And that's happy. To get, quick, quickly give a summary of like a typical episode for folks who have yet to watch. But a legacy list is it's a piece of paper that has the four or five most important items in your home. And I always made every client write that out. I said, hey, if your house burned down, you know, write me down the five items you'd want. And then I say, tell me why. Before everything burned down. Exactly. Yep. And they would tell me these four or five items. And then they would tell me the stories. And and they were incredible. And I would watch their like grandchildren be like, oh, well, I do want the piano then. I didn't know that was my great-grandfather's. And they didn't know the stories behind them. And so items that the grandkids and, and adult children didn't want after they heard the legacy list items, they were like, oh, I do want those items. There was a, in fact, I went through this with my own, my own parents, um, that my dad had a butcher block from my grandparents' country store. They had a country store out in Colorado in the middle of the mountains, middle of nowhere. And it was a very romantic thing to me, this store. They lived out, I mean, literally middle of nowhere. And this was the butcher block. And my grandpa would, would chop up all the meat that people, he would basically dress the, the deer that people were hunting. And he would do it for a business. And it was a good little business. And he, he raised his family on it. And I loved this butcher block. And when my, it was in my dad's kitchen my entire life. Right? And when my dad died, my brother and I, we were kind of, we had to decide who got what. And I really wanted the butcher block. And I fought and fought and fought. And I ended up giving up other items because the butcher block was so important to me. And I remember it just being this amazing item in my family's house. And uh, when my, after my dad died, I was really excited. I told my grandma, I said, hey, grandma, I got the butcher block. She goes, what butcher block? The one from the store? And I go, yeah. And she goes, you know a dog peed on that. We put it in the basement, right? And I'm like, what? <laughs> What? And her side of the story changed my entire view of this item that had been this amazing, incredible item in my brain my entire life. And then she just dismissed it. She's like, oh, yeah, dog peed on it. We don't like that thing. And I ended up throwing the, the butcher block away. <laughs> the story changed. But the point of that is, yeah, the story, yeah, plot twist, the story changes your feeling on these items right so i just hope you'll watch the show you'll laugh you'll 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 smile and then you'll go share your own family stories and are you shooting pretty casting all over the country or are you trying to yeah we're shop we're, we're going to be casting all over the country we definitely would love to feature two from georgia um we'd, you know one amazing thing about georgia is it's extremely diverse and the amount of stories that we're hearing are from all over the world i mean they're really amazing and so i have a feeling we'll do one in the country and one down in the city and i'm excited and then we're going to head west which I'm really, really excited about. Thank you, Matt. Hey, guys, thanks so much. All right, take care. There's nothing normal about our new normal, but AJC.com is the same trusted source you've always had, and we have just as much great content, if not more. That's why each week I'll highlight my personal picks for the best things to do, see, and experience. And the stories are easy to find on AJC.com. Many of the originators at Stax Records are gone, but William Bell is still here. And Stax Music and the Memphis Sound are still here, too. Now 84-year-old Atlanta resident Bell is being honored as a creator of the soul that put Memphis in the pantheon of American music and as a teacher who has kept that tradition alive. 
Bell is one of the nine artists and craftspeople who have been named as National Heritage Fellows, recipients of the nation's highest honor in the folk and traditional arts. The Lifetime Award comes with a $25,000 prize. Read Bo Emerson's interview with Bell on AJC.com. Renowned scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr. has carved out an impressive niche with PBS over the past 15 years with his explorations of famous people's genealogical roots via African-American lives in 2006, Faces of America in 2010, and Finding Your Roots since 2012. He also did a six-episode deep dive into African-American history for PBS in 2013. His latest effort again explores four centuries of the African-American past, but through a very specific lens in the four-hour documentary, The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. You'll find Rodney Ho's look at this new PBS special on the radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. Edmond Park, Atlanta's first planned suburb, is a wonderful place to get lost in. Nestled in between Old Fourth Ward, Little Five Points, and Ponce Highland, the neighborhood almost begs you to park the car and just walk around. Or better yet, take Marta to the Inman Park Station, cross the street, grab a cup of coffee in a pastry at Proof Bake Shop, meander through the winding streets, and take a breather at the many small urban oases, such as Springvale Park. On AJC.com, you'll find Mary Welch's guide to Inman Park under the Things to Do tab at AJC.com. In the past few weeks, a handful of black culinarians made the news with announcements of their hiring or promotion to top positions at prominent Metro Atlanta restaurants. Dining editor Lagaya Figueres notes that this stands in contrast to a 2016 story that she wrote about racial inequality in the restaurant industry. The tone then among numerous black chefs in Atlanta was one of deep-seated frustration as they shared stories of being passed over for job promotions due to the color of their skin, a lack of opportunities, leadership positions, and merit recognition, limited access to capital, and a need for mentorship. Find out how things are changing in the dining world in the latest Adventures in Food column under the Food tab at AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith. Podcast edited by Bria Felician. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.